You're listening to a DM podcast. A lot of people have said that I'm pretty fussy when it comes to women, but I'm fussy for a reason. That's right. Absolutely. Because I'm not the kind of guy that any girl can marry. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to a new episode of Mr. A+. Today's guest is a gentleman who is a TV presenter for SBS and and also NITV. He was a presenter on the travel show Getaway. In fact, he was the first Indigenous presenter on Getaway, and he was also the executive assistant to director Baz Luhrmann on his 2022 film Elvis, which I saw myself not too long ago. Maddie is a proud Kamilaroi. Is that how how you pronounce it? Yeah, Camilla Roy. Maddie is a proud Camilla Roy man who has a remarkable story. Let's give a warm welcome to the one and only Maddie Mills. Oh, thank you so much for having me. What an intro. I don't think anybody has ever done an intro like that for me. So <laughs> I'm feeling quite on top of the world right now. Thanks, Maddie, and you're welcome. How are you doing? I'm good. It's a beautiful day today in Sydney. I um, I live in Sydney, so it, the, the sun is shining, there's blue skies. It's been a little bit um, damp and wet over the last week, so it's lovely to be able to wake up to a beautiful day in Sydney and um, and a brand new week. I mean, it's the start of the week. I, I love the start of every week. I feel like it's an opportunity to be able to set goals and get and get things done. So I'm feeling pretty good. How about yourself? I'm actually doing pretty well, thanks. Looking forward to how this year is going to pan out. Yeah, it's, it seems like it is already roaring through. Like we're already halfway, well, more than halfway through the first month. So yeah, I just think we're going to blink and it's going to be over again. <laughs> yep, can't wait. You worked on, the, on that television show Getaway, right? Yes. You know what? Getaway came at a very interesting time because we were at the, in the middle of the pandemic when this job came up. And most people... You know, most people had been out of work at this time and most people weren't traveling. Um, And so I felt really fortunate to be able to take on um, a dream job. I watched Getaway growing up like many people in our country did, you know, as kids and seeing Katrina Roundtree and um, all these incredible presenters travel around the world and be able to explore destinations. Um, But there was never an Indigenous voice on the show. There was never an Indigenous presenter. And... I was very aware of that. Like I was aware of that years ago. And um, I had early connections after high school and after um, university with Channel 9. So I had fostered some relationships within the network and they came in handy a few years later when I um, I got the call to be able to be the first ever Indigenous host on the show. And it's something that I... um, that I, you know, it was always always a dream, but I never thought that it would come to fruition so quickly in my career. I'm, you know, I'm a young, I'm young, I'm only 27, so it's, you know, um, so it's a massive gig for someone at this at this point in their career. And um, I've had a brilliant time being able to travel around and um, and share stories of First Nation tourism and yeah. not, and and other um, tourism um, adventures as well, but. My heart is really set to be able to amplify the voices of my community, whether that's the First Nations community or the queer community. It's um, that's where my passion is. So if any job aligns with that, I'm yeah, I, I, I'm I'm ready. Well done. Thank you. At least at least you managed to have those connections straight after you finished school. 
Yeah, and, and, and you know what? This industry is who you know. And my, I mean, it also yeah. is hard work and skill and talent and honing yes. your craft. But for me, it's like if you know the right people, there's doors that can be opened or, or you know, slightly set ajar so that you can walk through. Um, because if you don't know um, people in this business, it's really hard to get a foot in the door. Um, and I've been yeah. lucky enough to be able to actually you know, know a few um, people in some in some great positions, which helped me along the way. Yeah, that's really impressive. Although I didn't really get managed to get my foot in the door until Love on the Spectrum happened. Yes, I mean that must have been a whirlwind for you, right? Like, what can I ask you? I know this is your podcast, so I'm not going to turn into the interviewer, <laughs> but I would love to know, like, what was that experience like for you in in the beginning? It was actually enjoyable. I really enjoyed every moment of it. In fact, yeah. I hardly ever noticed the cameras. Yeah, wow. That's that's a skill in itself. I'm somebody who notices exactly where the cameras are. So even if I'm talking to you and we're having a one-on-one, my peripherals are already thinking about where the cameras are. And that's mm. not a good thing because you're not present in the moment. So to be able yeah. to eliminate that noise and eliminate the idea that you're being filmed, that's a skill that I'm, I'm yet to, to really um, nail. Yes, I suggest you keep working on that. Yeah. <laughs> For those who don't know, Getaway is an Australian travel show. Um, can you tell us about some of the amazing destinations you explored? Some of the best locations that I've been to have been in this country. I went to um, an incredible place called Monkey Maya, which is at the top of the Western Australian um, coastline. It's very close to Broome, a little bit south of Broome. But it is the most pristine location I've ever, you know, had had the privilege of going to. It was, it was r- like r- rusty red sand that met white, white white sand that went into turquoise water, crystal clear turquoise water with the most incredible marine life. It felt like I'd walked through a postcard and I had, and I was living in a bit of a dreamland because. You, I, I, we were driving through to get to these locations and a lot of the time, yeah, the shots that you see and the, and the beautiful um, imagery is like, is breathtaking. But to get to the locations, it's actually a bit of a trek. So you have to like, you know, you're sort of forward driving through the dunes and, and, you know, you're on this rough road and then you sort of take a minute to look around and, and you can, you just realise that you're immersed with like nature's finest and it's the most like untouched land. It's... Um, it, it, it feels like it's something that you are supposed to look at and not be a part of because it's so beautiful. Um, so Monkey Maya for me was one of those top tier locations. But um, yeah, I, I, I think that we have so many beautiful places in our country that we are yet to explore. And um, yeah. that's what I'm hoping to really yep. do with Getaway is, is explore our own backyard. Yeah. Although I can't really relate because... I've done very little travel throughout my life. The only places in Australia that I've ever visited were Melbourne and Harvey Bay, but that was it. I've spent Harvey 90, Bay is beautiful. I've spent ninety-eight percent of my life stuck in New South Wales, which to <laughs> me is is nothing beautiful at all. Do you live like Wollongong area? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That is to me some of the most beautiful spots are close to you, and I'm talking the Royal National Park. The beach line, the South Sydney beach line, like Bulleye Beach, 
for rule, those beaches are amazing. So, I mean, sometimes it takes just a reimagining of the, of your own space. Like you, you are, you have the privilege of living in one of the most beautiful locations. And sometimes when you live there, yeah. you don't see it. But yeah. also New South Wales, there are some really beautiful spots. If you travel up North, I was just in the North coast near Byron Bay in a place called Cabarita beach, uh, which was nominated as the best beach in Australia. Well, it was awarded the best beach in Australia and in the top 20 in the world. So, I mean, don't, don't think that New South Wales doesn't have any, any beautiful spots. I'm telling you, Michael, if you, if you want to travel around New South Wales, you will, you will find some beautiful spots. If you want something done, sometimes you've got to take action yourself. Do it yourself. I believe in that as well. I'm somebody who's done that for my whole life. You know, I, I've really created my own life by design. I, I come from very little when it, in terms of um, privilege, and I, I grew up in a very you know, um, disadvantaged household. So for me, everything that I've wanted, I've gone out and I've gone out and, um, and basically yeah. created the opportunity myself, including getaway. I was actually going to ask you how you, how you got the role on getaway, but I feel like you've already answered that question for me. Yeah, I was watching, I'll tell you a little story. I was watching getaway one night, Thursday night in my apartment. I realized that the presenters all looked the same to me. They looked very much like the blonde, surfy, stereotypical Australian that maybe people overseas would see. And to me, that was like, it was alarming because I walked away from the screen, I came back and I didn't know if the presenter had changed. So I sent an email immediately in the middle of, you know, it was like in the middle of the afternoon, it's 5.30pm or something, and um, to some people I knew at Channel 9 and I said, I'd love to meet with the executive producer of Getaway. So I went in and I met with him and I basically pleaded my case and I said, look, I've done my research here, here over the 34 years, this is, these are the presenters you've had and every single one of them is white. Every single one of them is a Caucasian Australian. We need to, we need to change this up and he, I'm, I'm, I'm offering my um my services to be able to do this and you know it was a really hard conversation because you're walking into um, a network that is um that has a certain audience and and they know what they their audience likes and to be able to shift that it's a hard thing but i just felt like oh well i'm not gonna either way i'm not gonna lose so you know if i get the gig i get the gig and i win if i don't at least they know that there's people out there honestly um, viewing their channel and 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 not liking what they're seeing that's yeah. actually really impressive. Well done. Great, Thank great you. job on your efforts. Thanks. Um, did working on the show give you a different perspective on our country down under? It did. It, um, for me, it, I mean, I love connecting with local people in rural and remote locations. That was the, that was the most exciting part of the shoots. It was, you know, getaways, the, the shooting days are very long. So you're up before sunrise and you go to bed, you know, well after sunset. So you have a small window by yourself in a hotel room in the middle of the night. But outside of that, you're connecting with either the crew, um, which are new people all the time, um, or the locals. And the locals have fascinating stories that you get to, you know, unpack and behind the scenes. So you're sitting there with, you know, a group of maybe 10 locals who are a part of this story. And you're just having incredible conversations about their town, their experience, their tourism company, the um, evolution of, of the business. And there are these go like golden gems of golden nuggets of information that you get to, um, get to hear that you would never have the opportunity of 
um, having these conversations outside of this little circle. So yes. for me, my favorite part was always connecting with the locals, even though you get to the end of the day and you're so exhausted because yeah, you might be doing, you know, you might be doing your stuff to camera, but then as soon as the camera's off, everyone wants to talk to you. So you're continuously talking throughout the day. You get to the end of the day, yeah. you're like, I, I need a nap. <laughs> yeah. I've never really experienced a work day like that before, but I'll certainly do my best. <laughs> you know what? I don't know if it's what you should aim for. <laughs> it is tiring. It's tiring, Michael. You don't, you, I think if you can have a, a work day where you, you know, you, you still get the opportunity to have your own time by yourself and relax, that's aspirational. Working from dusk till dawn, it's, it's, I don't know if it's, it's what you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I'm actually pursuing a career in acting myself. Because right. I have a huge passion for that craft. I love that. And have you always wanted to do it? Yep, ever since I was a kid. Wow. Oh, well, you know what? Don't ever stop um, chasing that dream because if there's something that's in your heart and there's that seed and that passion and, and it's the yeah. thing you think about all the time, you absolutely need to, to do that thing because that is your purpose, you know? And there can be yeah. other things on the side that, that you can have the ability to express yourself, but... If you, acting is your thing, yeah, like there's nothing like it. There's nothing like being able to create a character and a backstory and, and being able to, um, you know, it's almost like living in fantasy land. Wow. Do you do audition for things and do you do self-tapes? I actually don't really always do audition tapes, but yeah. it just depends on what my agent sends me. Yeah, great. Just, yeah, keep chipping away. It's, a, it's something that is forever evolving. Yeah, of course. I do agree. When did you first know that you were a performer and that you wanted to get into acting and presenting? I woke up in the middle of the night <laughs> when I was 17 years old and I had loved acting. Um, I loved, I did acting at school. I had um, done uh, co-curricular acting stuff outside of the school as well. So I went to other schools and did acting. It was always my number one dream. It was the thing I thought that I was, you know, born to do and it was my passion my purpose but in the middle of the night when I was 17 I woke up and I had just finished the HSC and I was like what am I going to do like where where how do I even start with this acting thing outside of school and I decided that acting school acting school in WA was going to be a really great um great thing for me because it took me away from everyone I knew and I could also be myself and be proud of um, be proud of who I am without all the baggage of everyone knowing or, you know, knowing a version of yourself because I actually wasn't out in terms of my sexuality either. So I was looking for a place and um, a, a location to be able to chase my passion but also be myself. And so when I was 17, I made the really strong decision when I woke up in the middle of the night. It was like 2 a.m. I remember it was at the end of November. And I woke up and I was like, okay, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to go to acting school. I'm going to move across the country as far away as I can from everyone I know. And I'm going to like become the version of myself that I've always wanted to be. And um, that was, that was when I really knew that I was going to do this thing, um, do this thing and give everything that I have to be able to do it. Great. That was a very inspiring story. Oh, thank you. When I was um, growing up in high school, I should have done drama from year eight, not from year 11. And to this day, I still regret it. Well, do you know what? You probably had in between the years of year eight and year 11, 
you're probably trying to still figure out who you are and what you wanted to do. And even yeah. though you probably there was the thing in the back of your mind saying, I should be doing this thing, maybe it wasn't the right time. So, you know, and maybe you had other experiences that enhanced you as a human being or, or, yeah. or taught you things in those years that maybe acting would have would have um, would have stopped. So, you know, everything's an opportunity. If you even, you know, even having those regrets, it's sort of like you won't make that mistake again. You know, if you, if you feel the need to do something or, or you feel that you should be doing something, you would do it now because you know that you made yeah, that mistake. Of course. Hi, everyone. I'm back real quick to talk about one of my favorite subjects, and that's yaoi's. For those of you that don't know, yaoi's are fictional mythical creatures that protect the animal kingdom and their habitats all around the world. The Yowie characters have also been made into chocolates that each have a treat inside of them, which is an animal. And I also collect them. I have 142 now. I'm still waiting for the next series to be released. But I don't collect the chocolate, obviously. I always eat that. The animals are what I collect because it was never about the chocolate. It's always about it's always about the animals themselves. That's the reward after eating yaoi's. Anyway, as you might know, my top favorite animals are big cats, and I thought I'd share some interesting facts that I happened to learn from yaoi's. Because with yaoi's, you also get fact sheets in each capsule whenever you get a yaoi. I recommend that you keep the fact sheets because they contain a lot of important information. I always keep them in a small sandwich bag. Let's get to it, shall we? Some of the biggest cats in the world include lions, tigers, jaguars, and snow leopards. The snow leopard, African lion, and Siberian tiger are three animals featured in a certain Yowie series called the World Wildlife Super Series. These three species of cat are apex predators, which means they have no natural predators and therefore it makes them top of the food chain. And thus, they are not a prey item. The Siberian tiger is found in eastern Russia and northeastern China. In the 1930s, there was only a small number of tigers, which was only 20 to 30 of them. Pfft, imagine that, ladies and gentlemen. But. Over the years, they have made a, a magnificent comeback, reaching to a higher number of 360 to this day. Impressive, isn't it? Tigers are the largest felines in the world. The male tiger weighs over 300 kilograms. The conservation status of the tiger is classified as endangered. And fun fact, lions and tigers both have a majestic status. I'll explain what that means. A majestic status means they display royal features. In the lion's case, the mane on the male lions, and in a tiger's case, the beautiful stripes they have. But also because they're also very powerful, heavy cats, which makes them appear to be royal. Um, snow leopards are found in mountain ranges in 12 countries across, across Central Asia, including China, Nepal, Russia, Pakistan, Mongolia, and the Himalayas. Unlike most big cats, snow leopards don't roar. Instead, they purr, growl, and hiss. Their conservation status is classified as vulnerable. The major threats that snow leopards face include poaching 
and legal trade of skins and body parts. Unacceptable, isn't it? But that's not all. Greenhouse gas emissions are also likely to cause shifts of tree lines within the, Him the Himalayas. I don't think I ever recall having experience with a big cat, but I would love to though. I've always loved cats. Well, everyone, I hope that you've learned a lot about these magnificent animals. They're some of my favorite animals, and I've learned a lot about them due to the information from fact sheets that we get whenever we get a Yowie. For more information on, on animals and Yowie World, go to yowieworld.com and you can find your nearest Yowie outlet there as well. Yowie Ambassador, over and out. I do have to ask you, who were your role models growing up? Yeah, um, growing up, it was a little bit hard to, within, okay, so within my uh, inner circle, inner family, it was actually yeah. really hard to find um, decent role models. I had um, a bit of a tumultuous um, childhood. I um, had a mum who struggled with substance abuse and still struggles with substance abuse. My dad um, left at a very young, when I was at a very young age, and um, I, I grew up with the belief that he had actually died. Um, and uh, because of my mum's, you know, substance abuse, we were put into foster care. So I always moved around a lot with my brothers. And, um, but there was one person in my life who I always looked up to, and that was my grandma, my nan. So my nana Cheryl, she was somebody who reminded me of myself as a little kid. And as I grew older, yeah. I, I became more like. Um, she was the most incredible nan she had incredible fashion so I always as the, you know a little kid would just look at her and think that she was just the superstar but as i got as i got older and realized that when i was in the foster care system that they they realized that my dad actually wasn't dead he was alive somewhere we that that shocked us completely because we had grown up with the belief that he had died and that's the reason why he wasn't there and um so once i met my dad when we're in the foster care system and we were able to reconnect and build a relationship, my dad became someone who I then looked up to because t hearing about his story and his life and how traumatic it was for him growing up in a small town as a black fella, as a First Nations man, experiencing extreme racism, experiencing, um, you know, the really tough um, relationships with his own dad and he became an inspiration to me because if he's still a kind-hearted man and he's still someone who has good morals even though he might have walked out in the beginning he then he then came back and and rectified the situation by um getting us out of foster care and becoming our dad again so for me um in the beginning you know it was my nan and, and then later in life um she passed recently and then later in life it was my dad my condolences. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Very sorry to hear. And that's actually one of the main reasons why I'm not so keen on being a dad myself. Yeah. A lot of children have crappy dads. You know what? It's true. And parenting must be hard. It must be very difficult. Yeah. And that's no excuse for the people who don't get it right. But it, it, yeah. I, I found a way not to judge my mum and dad um, as I've gotten older because I want a relationship with both of them. Um, my dad and I's relationship is great now. He's, you know, he's an incredible man. He's become an incredible dad, um, a great, 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 a great granddad. And, um, but my mum, mm. you know, I struggle with the relationship with her, but I've learned not to judge her. So we can actually still have a connection. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, your mother kind of reminds me of Phil Hartman's wife. Oh yeah. 
Who's that? Phil Hartman was an actor on Saturday Night Live, oh, of course. Radio, yeah. and The Simpsons as well. But yeah. he had a troubled marriage because his wife had substance abuse issues. Yeah, it's common. It's it's out there in the community. It's a real issue in in society. Substance abuse. Yeah, but when I potentially marry, I don't want what happened to them to happen to me. And I don't think it will because you're very aware of it. You know, you're obviously very aware of um of yourself and of what you want, and that's like the number one. Yeah, a lot of people have said that I'm pretty fussy when it comes to women, but I'm fussy <laughs> for a reason. That's right, absolutely. Because I'm not the kind of guy that any girl can marry. Yeah. Anyway, um, <clears throat> I do have to ask you, um, what did you enjoy from your time working with Baz Luhrmann on Elvis? Oh yes, that was a that was such an incredible gig. The funny thing was is that I never thought that this would ever just you know fall into my lap, but it sort of did through knowing somebody who knew him and you know and and thought that we'd be make a good connection, and we did. We we worked together on um, the Elvis film. I moved to the Gold Coast to be able to do this. I worked closely with Tom Hanks um, as well and Austin Butler. It was something that was like it was an out of body experience almost. It was like living within the world of Elvis and being in this studio that was creating all the all the memories of Elvis and 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 the, yeah. creating Graceland. Like they built a replica Graceland to be able to walk through that was just surreal. Wow! But working for Bads, he's a very kind, generous man. He's somebody who really um, champions his team and gives everyone um he's you know his time and his direction in a really thoughtful way i mean we had meetings about elvis's sunglasses with the production team that went for six hours and that's because those sort of details and the level of detail that goes into a production that is a baz Luhrmann production is exquisite yeah. it is and, and, you know, and just seeing the dynamic between him and Catherine Martin, his wife, who's the production manager, who's won four, uh, four Oscars in her time. Um, uh, it, were, it was brilliant. And um, Baz and I now be, have become really, you know, good friends. We text, um, you know, all the time. We, wow. catch up, we catch up whenever we're in the same city. It was, yeah, it, it, became, it was a great gig, a tough gig. Uh, it was a tough job. But um, I'm so glad and grateful for Baz. What was it like um, interacting with Tom Hanks? <laughs> Tom Hanks uh, was such a big personality. I didn't expect it. I thought that he'd be quite reserved, and I don't know why. But um, he was, like, always up. His energy was always up. And, you know, we spent a lot of time um, in pre-production doing the prosthetics. So him putting on, you know, um, uh, basically, like, uh, silicon to be able to be moulded into the colonel, which was Elvis's manager, and wearing fat yeah. suits and... and it was so, like, we were in rooms that the size of, you know, a shoebox for hours with Tom Hanks. So it felt like it became very normal to be around him. Um, he's very down to earth and very kind as well. And his team was amazing, you know. It was always an interaction between Baz's team and his team when, when you know, we were in the room. So, it, yeah, it was it was amazing. It was really great. And how what was your interactions with Austin Butler? Brilliant. I um I had the absolute privilege of um, working, you know, very closely with Baz on the film, which meant that I was very close to the cast. And there was always, you know, moments um, after work where we were able to hang out in sort of a very casual setting and, you know, play golf or, you know, I had an incredible experience where I 
was on a private jet with Austin Butler and Olivia de Jong, um, just the three of us. It was like out of this, if you, from where I come from in my life, like growing up to being on a private jet with Austin Butler and Olivia de Jong, it felt insane. It felt like, what is my life? But also we just sort of lived in the moment, you know? It was like, okay, this is my life for today. And I'm just going to ride with this and not get overwhelmed by it. But um, Austin, so nice, so humble, so generous, but like ultimately the most talented actor um, I've ever I've ever come across. Wow! Yeah, he seems like a, he seems like a really great guy. Yeah, he is. He really is, and he's humble and sweet, like very nice. I certainly would love to have him on the podcast. Oh, let's try and make it happen for you. <laughs> that would be great. Can you share something that you? learned from working on Elvis that might help me in following my acting ambitions? I think this is the thing that I learned while being behind the scenes because I, I, as an actor, I never get to see behind the scenes of a production. Remember to be yourself. Remember that the best, yeah. the best parts of an audition is when you get to see someone in their own element and not trying too hard to be a character. So if you get an audition and you read, you're, you're reading the lines and it doesn't sound like you, change some of those lines up. Have the ability and freedom to be able to put yourself into the role so, so that they know what, um, who you are. Because like, if you're able to shine authentically when a director is viewing those tapes, which I would be sitting next, right next to Baz while he was viewing the audition tapes, he's like, you know, he can, he can see through an act, but when you're yourself, it, it comes across brilliantly for a director. So make sure that yeah. like you hone in on who you are and, and portray that in an audition. Yeah, of course I would do my best, Yeah, but I'm still new to this industry and I'm still learning my way around as well. Thank you for that helpful advice. I really appreciate it. No worries. I have some three questions that I think will be really um, important. Yeah. Um, what are some things from your indigenous heritage that you are proud of? Yeah, as I said, when I grew up, I didn't have a lot of um, knowledge about my, my background because my dad left and my dad's um, Aboriginal when I was young. But when I grew up, it became the thing in my heart that I'm most proud of. And it's the thing that is, a, it's a spiritual connection between me and this place and this land and my family. It is something that is undeniably within the DNA of me. And for me, it fills me with pride to be a part of the oldest living culture on the planet. It's like... Mm -hmm. It's mind blowing to think that I come from the oldest living culture. That that's some you know that is something that I hold close to my heart, and I think that it's something that I want this country to get behind and and have more respect for the fact that our history book is much longer than two hundred and fifty years. It is tens of thousands of years old, and if we can, as a country, acknowledge that and accept that, we will be better for it. Of course, I found that the. Aboriginal flag is now displayed on the Sydney Harbour Bridge permanently. Yeah. And so it should. Yeah, it is. It's a beautiful flag and it's, it's a symbol of pride. It's also a symbol of yeah. generations of culture. Yeah. I actually have a lot of respect for Indigenous people. I appreciate that. But my skin tone is white. And even though I'm, I have Southern European heritage, I just don't really know how to approach Indigenous people in the, in the street. Being, I bet that's a common, just so you know, that's common. That is something that people are afraid to, people are afraid to um, insert themselves into the community because they don't know how people will respond. But what yeah. I would say is 
that there is so much um, there's so much beautiful culture and heritage that we love to share as a community. Maybe if there's like a local Aboriginal festival, if there's a, you know, I know that on um, Australia Day this year, January 26th is what I call that day, it, it, or Survival Day, there's a massive Aboriginal festival in, um, in Victoria Park in Camperdown, which I'll be at. Um, and so, like, if you can insert yourself in a non-sort um, of direct way where you sort of don't feel like you have to go and introduce yourself and say, you know, I'd like to learn about Aboriginal culture, that might be a way of being able to Im- immerse but also um, interact with the community and, and get a, a little bit more of an understanding of who we are as a people. But I would encourage yeah. it. I would encourage it. We're a very welcoming community. We um, open arms to, you know, more allies especially. Yeah, of course. It's Australia Day this week, which is a sad day for Indigenous people. Some call it Survivor Day and and others call it Invasion Day. So how can we as white Australians help to heal some of the hurt caused by our history? Yeah, I think, you know what, great question. The most important thing is that if we look at the historical context of this day and we understand what it means for a major part of our community, which is my community, the First Nations population of Australia, it is a day of mourning and, and it's a, it's, it has been asked to be a day of mourning for close to 100 years now. So the early, in the early 1900s, there, was, um, there were the first group of civil rights activists, First Nation civil rights activists that asked for this day to be a day of mourning. And uh, this was in the 19, 1930s. So it has been a day of protest and a call for it to be a day of mourning for like for close to 100 years. And um, the historical context is that there's a lot of hurt on this day. It isn't um, a celebration for First Nations people because it was almost like the beginning to the end of a culture or or genocide um, that was put on our people. So what we need to do as as a nation is retell the history of our country. So there's truth telling in every aspect. I'm talking about the education institutions um, and in our you know, political system. We, yeah. need, we need to make sure that when um, First Nations um, decisions are made for the First Nations community, that there is a consultation with our community because we know what's best for us. And that all comes down to what is being fought for right now, which is the voice to parliament, um, which will be um, asked through a referendum this year. But this day in particular, we are just asking for it to be um, seen as a day of mourning, not a day of celebration, because there's no celebrating genocide or there is no celebration when it comes to what this day symbolises for our people. So to make this a day of mourning is the call to action from the majority of the community. And I understand why people why people want to be able to celebrate. It's a public holiday. It's like a day off work and people are able to, you know, go out and hang out with their friends and stuff. But if there's just a little bit more respect for for the first yeah. people, I think that that would go a long way. It would be the first step in us, you know, coming together. Yeah, I know. With Australia Day, I see no reason to celebrate it. Yeah. Not on that day in particular for me. I think there are so many aspects of our country that we can celebrate as a community and together. But if the history of our country isn't told in through a truth-telling lens, I don't think that we're able to get to the point of celebration yet. No, I agree. But I am pleased about one thing. Climbing Uluru has been permanently banned, and so it should. Yeah, I was just in Uluru, actually, only a couple of weeks ago at the end of the year. 
And it was my oh. first time visiting this place. And let me tell you, if you get an opportunity to go, put it on your bucket list because it is extremely spiritual. It's extremely healing. And I am so glad, and as are the, the local elders, the Anangu people of Uluru, the Uluru family, they are so happy that that, that, that rock isn't being um, scarred anymore because Good. there was a lot of hurt there. What can we do this week in particular to honour the first people on this land we call Australia? This week, I would say, um, if you can, support the community in their calls to action, which is to change the date, maybe posting on social media, if that's what you, um, uh, you know, if that's your ability, um, or if that, that's what you want to do. Um, but also go and immerse yourself. There's many um, Survival Day events around the country. Go and immerse yourself in um, the community because you will look around and you will see how wonderful our community is and it is something yeah. that you want to champion. Yeah, of course. Well, um, thank you very much, Maddie. It's really lovely to get your perspective on all of this and to hear your love of culture yourself. Well, thank you. I believe or not, we're on to our Ask Mr. A Plus segment. Yeah. That's where you get to ask me questions, whatever comes to mind. Okay, so my question to you is, if you could have a dream role opposite any actor, who would it be and why? Uh, that's a bit of a tough one because there's a lot of people that I really want to work with. But there is one in particular playing the son of a, of a character played by Susie Porter or... Justin Clark. Oh, I love Susie Porter. She's great. She was wonderful in Wentworth. Yeah. Um, but I've watched her character's death in Wentworth on YouTube. The first two times I saw it, it actually brought me to tears. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, she was so lovable, yet such a wicked witch, yet, like, you still loved her because she had some sort of heart. Oh, gosh, I loved that show. But I, I first, first watched her in... um. Ladies in Black, and her performance has just reminded me of my mum. <laughs> and ever since I saw Ladies in Black, I've always dreamed of playing her son in something. Oh, well, there you go. Well, I, I manifest for that dream to come true for you. Thanks. <laughs> I just adore her, and so does my best friend, Brianna. Yeah, she is great. She's a friend of a friend of mine, so one day I hope to meet her, and if I do, I'll send you a selfie. Well, Maddie, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you take the time out of your busy schedule to come on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been an absolute treat. And um, congrats on all your incredible work. And uh, my thank fingers you. crossed for you for all the acting that's going to be coming your way soon. Ah, thank you. I really appreciate that. 